Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 119 of Dial the Gate. My name is David Reed. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stargate SG-1 co-creator Jonathan Glasner is joining us for this episode. But before we get started, if you like Stargate and you want to see more content like this on YouTube, please consider clicking that like button. It makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will definitely help the show grow its audience. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. Giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops and you'll get my notifications of any last minute guest changes. And clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next uh, few days on the gateworld.net YouTube channel. This episode is pre-recorded. Jonathan is in pre-production with Dean Devlin for his next television series, The Ark. They're actually in the middle of casting right now. Uh, so this was very last minute. It's one of the reasons I didn't uh, give fans a chance to ask questions because I only found out about uh, this interview last night. And we are very grateful to have him. Uh, he has agreed to come back once The Ark is on the air so that uh, we can have fans uh, get into that show as well and he will share more stargate stories uh at that point so as this is a pre-recorded interview the moderators will not be taking questions for jonathan this episode again we will have him back in the future but without further ado let's go ahead and bring in jonathan glassner to discuss uh the adaptation of stargate the feature film into children of the gods and some memories from the first three seasons of sg1 and tell us a little bit about the Ark. Jonathan Glasner, co-creator, writer, director, Stargate SG-1. Jonathan, uh, thank you so much for being here. This means such a great uh, deal to me to have you, and I'm, I'm glad we were we were able to, to make something uh, work of your insane schedule. Yeah, I'm pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> tell me what's uh, tell me what's going on. Tell me about the uh, not. Uh, I was about to say the outpost, but uh, well, we can get to the outpost in just a moment here. Tell me about the arc. Spoil it all for me. Well, I can't spoil much <laughs> of it for you because the network would kill me. Um, I can really only tell you what uh, what they've already revealed, which is that it's about a. Uh, a ship that is designed to try to get humanity to another inhabitable planet to try to save humanity because earth is falling apart. And uh, it's actually a whole series of arcs going. Oh, really? Okay. We're just focused on one arc. Yeah. And uh, the show starts off with uh, some, with while everyone is asleep in the pods, something hits us. And wipes out one of the pods completely, and about half the people in the other pod make it out alive. And unfortunately, the pod that was taken out were all our leaders, all our experts, all our top scientists. And these are sort of the lower level people that are left to try to survive on the ship. And they are unqualified 
to really to to do it, but qualified enough to be able to pull it off. You know, they're the junior people in every department. So this is so, going to be ship based, not planet based. Ship ship based entirely. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we are currently filling three sound stages in Belgrade, Serbia, with ship sets. Serbia. Wow, that is what a great location. All right. And yeah, well, I mean, we shot we shot um, Outpost there, and okay. we fell in love with the people on the crew, the amazing crew. So we literally just moved our crew and our, our over and took our same stages and folded up the Outpost stages, uh, Outpost sets, because Outpost still has a chance of getting picked up elsewhere. All right. And set these up, so. That's fantastic. Yeah. Is this yeah. um, going to be a family show? Is this going to be... Uh, it's started a for teens story. or for adults more it's for it's for adults mostly but it's you know anyone everyone can watch it it's not it's not too scary or too it, it's meant to be kind of lighthearted and and um you know it, if it, if you've ever seen the outpost it's a similar tone right it's actually okay. a similar tone to stargate okay uh, it's got uh some real danger but everybody you know, it's about the characters and everybody has a sense of humor and, you know, we have some fun with it. What is what is your take on approaching something like this when when a show like Lost in Space has has just wrapped where it was it was, you know, we're, we're looking for a, a new world. Um, the mission kind of goes sideways with an alien attack. What what is is your intent on approach with. Uh, projects uh, like the arc to make it kind of new and unique and fresh. What do you want to do um, that hasn't really been done? You know, for me, it's not about the hardware and the, mm. the plot and the, it's much more about the people, the characters. I, I think that you, your show succeeds or fails on, on the audience falling in love with the characters and their interactions and how, how that particular group of people deals with a story that you may or may not have seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Stargate for me, I, I attribute the success of Stargate entirely to that, the cast and the characters. Agreed. 100%. Um, if it had been a bunch of boring people and we did the exact same story, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have succeeded. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did it with, you know, very dynamic people and fun mm-hmm. characters who had a sense of humor and, you know, got along with each other and so on. This is terrific. Now, when uh, can we hope to see a series premiere? I wish I knew. Uh, they okay. haven't told us. We start we start shooting uh, at the end of March. Okay. Uh, we're busily writing the, the the episodes, and they're bu- they're busy building the sets. Um, the sets are going up so fast; it's astounding. This is a, um, this is a good this is a good thing. Yeah. Do you have your cast yet? Or are you still looking? We are casting now. We're in the we're midst of casting now. now. Wow. We're casting internationally, so we're okay. looking at people uh, all over the world. Um, the crew on the ship is supposed to be international, so we we okay. actually want accents and you know that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, Can, different. Is the year of of this uh, announced yet? Like when when it's taking place we're, internally? You know, we in the never story? we're never really going to say. But okay, in, just in my head, it's about a hundred years from now. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, just in terms of the level of technology, it's probably what roughly where we'd be in 100, maybe 200 years, somewhere in that. Okay. So. Yeah, you were mentioning like there was everyone's going to have one accent. So it's either like going to be something that. No, everybody will not. Everybody will not, will have, not one. have one accent. People will I have see. their own accent. I'm, yeah, I'm that's the right. idea. Yeah. We'll have yeah, their that's own. That's the idea. Okay. So it's an international crew. The, all right, then. Very good. Um, yeah. All right. I, I can't wait to see this thing. This uh, this looks like a. Uh, it's it's looking right like it's going to be a lot of fun. It's looking like it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Are you looking. Oh, are you looking to attach any uh, are you looking for completely fresh performers across the board or are you potentially looking for one or two people that also will have some name recognition um no it'll all be it'll all be new people i mean we may you know i don't know how big a stars you would consider them but we may be using some of our cast from the outpost okay um but uh only one or two of them so well when you have someone that does the job and you know they can do the job why wouldn't you exactly. consider bringing them in? I understand that. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. As to um, the outpost, so there is a possibility that it will potentially be moved over to another network. You're still exploring um, that option. Yeah, I can't really say who or okay. what or where, but um, there is somebody who's interested in it, and you know, you never know with these things. This business is nuts. Um, this is true. They wouldn't commit fast enough for us to keep shooting. Um, so uh, we'll see. They want to see how how it does in reruns first. I think understood. All right. I I only learned in the last few recent years that uh, that Apple wanted to pick up Stargate SG One for a season eleven, and Sci Fi Channel had a clause preventing them from going to another network. So it sounds like you're good in that area on that last bit. Yeah, yeah. I Oy. can't believe that clause existed, but you know. Oh, I know, but what can you do? So, yeah, we're so. You had one more season for the outpost planned. Am, am I? Am I? No, outpost. Right? Outpost. Uh, if if we do get a new season, it's uh-huh. going to be really hard to write because wow. we concluded that show. I mean, we yeah. intentionally wrote to an ending, and it ended. Yeah, nothing lasts forever. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we had a you know the final episode was a finale. It was written as a finale and ended as a finale. The last episode of season four. So if season five happens, we're going to have to come up with. Uh, you know, a new villain or something that steps in and screws everything up again. <laughs> have, have you seen the the new Matrix? I have not. I haven't had time. Okay. Well, let me just I say hear this. I hear mixed things. I loved it. It was a oh, perfect okay. epilogue whereby there's there's a little bit of a time difference, and it gives an excuse to um, to put a button on a story that you thought was finished, but it was like, you know what? This doesn't feel like extra. So if you do it right, if you play your cards right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From what I've read, that they had the same issue. They kind of had felt like uh, they ended it with The Last Matrix, and then they did this movie, and they had to come up with a way to restart it, right? Absolutely. I um, wanted to ask you mm-hmm. for a long time about taking us back down this road of Stargate SG-1. It's 1996, I believe, the film has come out. You and a couple of others are working on, independently of each other, an idea for a series. Where were you in your head at that time? You were working on Outer Limits. Well, and <clears throat> um, I think Brad remembers this a little bit differently than I do, but um, rough, it, it, roughly the same. Um, he and I were doing The Outer Limits. Um, he... Uh, 
we both, I, I was the American up there doing it and he was the local doing it. And I had been up there for like five years at this point. And my wife was ready to kill me because she didn't want to be up there anymore. And so I told him, Jim, I wasn't going to come back and do any more Outer Limits. Mm. And uh, this was season three. And the president of MGM actually flew up to Vancouver and sat down with me and basically said in so many words, what would it take to get you to come back, to stay? And I said... um, For a season four. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, um, there's nothing you could do that would make me stay. And he said, because would, it would be like a divorce, right? Yeah. And then he said, well, we have a commitment from Showtime for a 22-episode order of a new series. It's yours if you want it, but you have to stay up here. And if you have an idea that, that Showtime would want and I left and thought about it. And then I came back and I said, well, you have this movie in your library called Stargate that in my opinion should have been a, a series, not a movie. That it would make a great series. And apparently Brad did the exact same thing. Brad had a meeting with him and also pitched Stargate. And I, I'm sure Brad and I had talked about it at some point, which is why it was in both of our heads. Because you were um, both on Outer Limits. Yeah, we were both doing Outer Limits, yeah. Um, and, but Brad lived up there. He wasn't threatening to leave or anything, Right. Um, but they wanted him to stay. And, um, John Symes, the president of MGM, who was a brilliant guy, um, said, we can't do that. We can't do Stargate as a, cause what we, we have a deal with Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin. So we can't do that. Anything else you wanted to, and I couldn't think of anything else, um, in their library that I wanted to do. Um, and I was too busy to come up with a new thing. And then um, two weeks later, he called back and said, that other deal fell through. It's yours. You can do it. And how do you feel about being eager? Brad at the time? I was Brad's boss at the time. Okay. Um, but we were really at this point, we had been doing it for three years and we were basically partners. Yeah. You're in the um, trenches. Yeah, Exactly. And so John came back and said, how do you feel about doing it with Brad as equal partners, co-created it? And I said, great. And I guess Brad said, great too. And, and the rest was history. That's what we did. So we went off and wrote the pilot and um, co-wrote the pilot. And then it went from there. The, uh, the net- we had to go pitch it to the network to, to show Tom what we were going to do. They were happy with what we were talking about. They were happy with the pilot script. So we went to production. And it was a, we were so fortunate that they had that commitment from Showtime because we went straight into full production for the series, not just the pilot, um, which enabled us to amortize those massive sets and visual effects and all that stuff across 22 episodes instead of just one pilot. Because that pilot would have been a, you know, $30 million pilot or something if we didn't. It would have been ridiculous. Yeah, almost as bad as the movie. Yeah. So um, that's what enabled us to do it was that, brilliant deal that John Symes had made with Showtime at the time. And then we, after we made, I think six episodes or maybe, maybe been eight episodes after we turned those in to the network, they were so happy with it that they committed to 48 more. Wow. And that gave us, you know, 
such creative freedom. I can't even tell you. So this is the, I, I imagine so. So this is the first time hearing that Showtime and MGM had come to a 22 episode agreement of something else, but it had, that something had not been decided. They just wanted exactly. another product. Exactly. We had been doing the Outer Limits. The Outer Limits had been a huge success for them. Um, it had done, you know, very good numbers. for them. They were very happy. With it. So the, so John Times was able to spin that off and say, okay, if you want more of these, then you got to give us this. And he, you know, he made this great deal. And, you know, he and the MGM, you know, business people and stuff. And, um, and we were the beneficiaries of it. And and I, as an audience member, absolutely. I, I got to tell you, as a, a as a fanboy here, I uh, found a place uh, at uh, the television set Saturday nights, late night on syndicated programming, Poltergeist: The Legacy, and The Outer Limits. And let me tell you something. I was more than a little bit pissed when one of those didn't come on, and instead this big ring is appearing, and this girl gets taken by these <laughs> snake guys, and it's like, what the hell is this? And Jonathan, after the first hour, I had not seen the movie. And after the first hour had ended, I'm sitting there going, it's still running. Why is it still running? I've got to go to church in the morning. So (laughs) I taped the VCR to get the last hour, and I watched it the next day. And from that point, I was hooked. I had missed it on Showtime, but I had seen it on, on syndication. Immediately bought Showtime the next weekend and caught myself up. And now, so, are you in the States or are you in Canada? I am in the States. Oh. And it's it was just one of those shows where the 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 casts were kinetic and they they were the reason that you tuned in, not just for that, which is very important, mind you. Um it is a character in and of itself, but you guys cast so well. So tell can you tell me a little bit about um making a, an offer for Richard Dean Anderson? Well, I, you know, I got to give credit where credit is due. That was John Times also. Um, really? John Times had been the executive at Paramount when MacGyver was done and was friends with Rick. And John came to Brad and I and he said, and he thought we were going to hate the idea. I don't know why he thought that, but he came to Brad and I and he said, how would you feel about Richard Dean Anderson playing Jack? And um, both of us immediately said, yeah, will he do it? Can we afford him? And he said, well, let me see if I can set a meeting. And we sat down with with Rick. And Rick's main thing was, he said, um, the way it was in the movie, the way Jack was in the movie was he was basically suicidal. And he was this dour, sad guy. He said, I don't want to play that for some team episodes, you know, this guy's got to have a sense of humor. It'd be miserable to watch otherwise. Yeah. And we said, we're with you hundred percent. That's what we're planning. That's what we want to do. And we shook hands on it. And he, there he was, he was attacked and he was, he was great. He was just, I don't mean just as an actor, but as a person, he was just fun to work with. There is something about Jack where, you know, that really fundamentally, what happened with Kurt Russell's character in, in the feature film is of no part to Richard Dean Anderson's portrayal of the character, except when you get him into a corner in certain scenes and you understand that that through line of the child suicide is always going to be there. He's yeah. just, Oh yeah. We has... kept it. We kept it in. We just didn't make him look like he was going to kill himself all the time. Right. Exactly. And the humor 
his his outlook on life is kind of in a place now where it's you know this has happened to me this is always going to be a part of me but how i make fun of life is how i get through it and we as an audience buy that because when any of the characters or anyone else around him gets close to what happened with him as a father he snaps and it's one of those amazing performances that you know and uh, uh in terms of like the breadth of an actor that rick can pull that off yeah. you know it was just a reward to watch and then when he's funny he's i mean we're on the ground laughing our asses off yeah and then we did a big search for the rest of the cast in, in canada and the u.s and that took a while that was harder but uh tell us about finding amanda carter samantha carter amanda um we we had read god it felt like a thousand women for the part we had gotten auditions submitted from all over the world because we'd given up on finding somebody in canada and the u.s she was a really hard part to cast because showtime wanted her to be an attractive woman yeah they wanted to sexify it a little bit uh based on what i've heard yeah um but you also have to believe that she's an astrophysicist, that she's really smart. She's got to have that sense of humor we wanted. And that's why she has to have comic timing. And she's got to have the physical presence to believe that she was trained as a, as a soldier. Mm-hmm. Right. Those four qualities together and being a good actor, of course, is really hard to find. Um, you can find any few of them, but the combination of all are really hard. Yeah. You have to believe it. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as you have this, you know, pretty spokes model playing a soldier who's an astrophysicist, you know, it, it's not going to work. They got to be, they've got to be a real actor and they've got to have an intelligence to them. And then we got a tape of Amanda doing this comedy show that she was doing in Toronto. Oh man. (laughs) And we said, Oh, let's get this woman in. And she came in and read for us and completely nailed the part. Then we brought her in for a chemistry read with Rick. Um, Cause at the time the thought was there would be a, will they or won't they romance? Right. The air force isn't, I'm guessing the air force extremely involved yet. And right. right. And, um, and she was just great. She just, you know, she was Amanda Carter. She was just, I mean, Samantha Carter. You got it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'll tell you a funny story about that name. I had named uh, the lead female character in two shows before Stargate, Samantha, because Samantha was my favorite name. I always said I was going to name my first daughter, Samantha, and did. My first daughter's name is Samantha. I did not know that. And then um, my... Second child was born, and my wife and I were trying to come up with a name, and we came up with Amanda without realizing what we were doing. And all of a sudden, I said, "Oh, it can't be Amanda! I'm going to look like a weirdo here. Like I'm obsessed with Amanda tapping or Samantha Car." So we didn't name her Amanda, and it was really totally didn't even, you know, we weren't thinking of Amanda that, at that point. It was beyond that, but anyway. She is a huge director up in Canada I know. now. And I know. I've, I've kept in touch with her. My Samantha is now in Canada trying to be an actor. 
And Amanda has been very sweet to her. So Amanda's been ah, uh, that's giving her advice and stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, and we've been trying to get Amanda on the show here, and it's just one of those where it's like she's so busy, I can't feel bad because, like, you know, we'll get her on eventually. You know, all the more power to her. She's doing exactly what she wants to do, and what she's she did. Such was, a great, she's such a great woman. She's just very, very smart. Woman. She's wonderful, and yeah. what she did Down with Carter over, you know, all these years was just extraordinary arc. Well, I'll tell you, she would take when we would give her all the like the science battle um she would take it and study it and look up what it actually meant and you know when it came out of her mouth it sounded like she actually knew what it was she had to believe it as just, much as she could yeah which was just great yeah you have this performance in the feature film of a 25 year old geek who is not all there Somewhere on the spectrum, but um, absolutely in touch with his humanity enough to bring Jack back from the brink and kind of restores um, Jack through their the, the battle that they go through and the, and the friendship that um, that ensues. Finding a replacement for James Spader could not have been an easy task. And when no. I put in the feature film the next night after finishing children of the gods. Cause I want to see what this is all about. I thought it was the same actor for a little while. It was that specific. The, the, not only the appearance, but the choices that Shanks made. Mm-hmm. Tell me about finding which evolved, which evolved as the show went on, but he started out at that point. And, Correct. And evolved. Yeah. Um, you know, it was interesting. We, we we had several other actors that we were thinking we were going to go with for that part. And the problem I kept having, and I think Brad kept having too, was I just don't like this guy. You know, like, I'm not sure I want to invite him into my home. Daniel? No, no, not Daniel, the, the actor. Oh, the I The other see. actors. We, so we'd be looking at this actor who'd be, who would nail the, the nerd and the science and all that, but just... You just didn't like the, you know, the guy. You didn't want to invite him into your living room. Right? He, he was more of a bad guy. We had several that were like that. that and we kept saying, we've got to find somebody who's, who pulls that off and is also just really likable. And then we saw, again, we saw film on Shanks before we met him or before he read for us. And we were like, if he can do the nerd thing, you know, because most of the parts he had done prior to that were the handsome, you know. Right, exactly. Man type. <laughs> and uh, he came in and nailed it. So, you know, it was it was interesting with all the parts is that as soon as we saw them, we knew they were it. It just took us a while to find them. Same thing happened with Chris. Yeah, the, the, the Brad's old quote. All right, Teal'c, moving on. <laughs> he was just there on the screen. Yeah, I mean, Chris, I don't know if Brad remembers this, but we had a um, we had seen Chris on tape, but we'd never met him or seen him in person. And then we had screen tests in, in L.A. Uh, in the theater at MGM, and we had them all come in and read with Rick. And, and Chris walked in the room, and Brad and I looked at him, saw, first of all, how big he was and how interesting looking he was mm-hmm. and how... Because, I mean, he's this, just this buff, really good-looking, interesting-looking kind of combination of ethnicities. And we looked at each other and said, please, God, let this guy be able to act. Please, God, let me 
because <laughs> we had not found anybody. We had looked at, we, we were at our wit's end. So Chris was, he and one other guy and the other guy we didn't really like were the only ones who came in to read for the screen test. And as soon as he opened his mouth, we were both like, okay, there he is. That's him. He can talk. He can, you know, he's a good actor. He, he is Teal. He is. Done, moving on. And that yeah. that voice is making him a lot of money now with uh, with T'Challa and with uh, 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 Kratos, God of War. So you guys picked well. Yeah, he's he was he was a gift from God because that that character was hard to cast. And it's it's one of those that I was so surprised at when in watching um, uh, the pilot. You you picked someone who is on the inside who. It's like you know what, I can't do this anymore. I'm done with it, and uh, uh, takes up his sword, so to speak, and joins uh, and joins our cause. Was that uh, the intent from the original draft of the pilot to have someone on the inside who who yeah. became a traitor? And yeah, that was always our plan. We one of the things that helped Brad and I a great deal with coming up with the pilot was we really studied the movie. And the movie had um, quite a following. And so we wanted to be true to it as best as we could. And so what we did was we looked at the movie and we looked at all the holes in the movie. And I don't mean holes in a negative way. I mean, things that they would have answered if they had gone on, right? Things that were left open and said, so so explain, how do we explain that? Who are these guards that work for Ra with the helmets, the clothes and, you know, what is Ra? You know, he looks like a human, but his eyes glow. And, um, you know, it was never really explained what he was. And so we came up with the whole Jaffa and gold thing. And then we said, well, if we have, if, if this is the case, if we have these Jaffa, one of them has to be one of our regular characters. Mm. So how do we get there? And that's how we got there. Yeah. He's, he's almost a Stargate's Spock equivalent. You know, it's, it's good to have an alien or a, a, a a presence among the group that can shine a mirror back on us and ask us, ask those questions, have us ask those questions because it's a sci-fi show. You know, it's, it's about the deeper meaning of humanity at the end of the, well, at the end of the day, it's about good old fashioned entertainment. But you know, if you can, if you can ask yourself questions of humanity, you're doing something more. You're bringing the audience some some higher level of entertainment. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, so it's the best science fiction asks questions. Absolutely, it, or makes the audience ask questions. <clears throat> Peter Williams as Apophis, mm-hmm. over the top, um, but you completely believe in this guy uh, at, in this in this role. Was it tough to find Apophis as well, or? Was it? No, we 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 wrote the part for Peter Pat practically. Okay. Peter had been in at least three Outer Limits, playing different kinds of different people, and uh, so we knew him. We knew what he could do. We we knew his look was interesting for uh, for that kind of character, and so he, you know, we I don't know if we literally wrote it for him, but we immediately had him in mind for it. So that one was easy. What about Donis Davis? As General Hammond, Dana Elkar's again, that double on MacGyver. Again, he had he had been in uh, so many shows I had done up there. I had you know I did a show called Twenty One Jump Street up there. He was a regular on that. 
He was a regular on a show called Street Justice that I had done up there. Um, and he had done several Out of Limits. Um, and Rick knew him and loved him from MacGyver. And uh, Rick's partner, Michael Greenberg, was friends with him. So it was a, kind of a no-brainer. Brainer. He was a perfect choice for it. I remember watching the pilot, and there isn't much to him in, in the pilot. There isn't a lot of time. Um, I remember thinking, man, because my family's military, all, all except for me, pretty much. I'm thinking, you know, if this if this character can be played right, this is going to be a great part. I'm not seeing it in the pilot, but in, in the future episodes here. And Don, in, in in chatting with him over the years, you know, felt felt the same way. Uh, he had issues with Mario as a party's uh, take on the character in the pilot. Oh, really? <laughs> I never heard that. He, yes, he, he called Mario a man of limited imagination. Uh, and I'm quoting Don here. Interesting. But he never told me that. He was just, he you know, felt that the character had places to go. And, you know, over the course of the series, that was that was shown pretty obvious as someone who, along with Walter and some of the others, you know, when those guys were out there, had the light burning for them at home. And, you know, th- those were his kids. That was his team. Mm-hmm. Um, and Don conveyed that beautifully. Yeah. Terrell Rothery. Yeah. She had played, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in an episode that uh, you had filmed. Uh, I believe that you directed of Outer Limits, one of my favorites episodes where, uh, uh, well, like many of Brad's, the world goes to hell. Um, is it Feel the Fire, if I'm not mistaken? Let me have a look here. I don't remember. Um, I can't remember any of the names of the episode. Uh, this It's one of my favorites, uh, Outer Limits. Trial by Fire. Oh yeah, Robert yeah. Foxworth, and I believe yeah. she plays a character named Janet. On top of it, um, yeah. Doctor Frazier doesn't appear until Broca Divide. But once you guys found the doctor for that facility, she stuck. Yeah, she was supposed to be a, a one or two episode character, and but she was great. We loved her, so we just kept writing her, and she became a regular. What is it about? Uh, finding that one of the things that that sg1 did so well was i i think when you brought guest performers on that worked the 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 writers and and everyone involved i don't know if it was let's have them back or you know this we have this uh with this story upcoming here this kind of works where where is the line between this is a great performer i want to have them back again and uh or it it just it just happens more like naturally in in the script the script kind of the the direction of the story kind of calls for them to return yeah i'll tell you it's sort of the inverse of that in a way it it the if the if the script calls for a doctor we're going to bring her back unless we didn't like her right if we didn't like her we either wouldn't write the script or it would be a new doctor a different doctor that came in you know so it's sort of the inverse of that. We don't generally don't write a part for somebody just because we like them in the thing. It's got to come out of story. Um, but we would not reuse them if we had not liked them. Do you know what I mean? I see. Christopher Judge and I had a conversation once about um, about talent who would sometimes their management would approach and say, you know, we'd want to have a multi episode deal, and you guys would be like, as far as Chris was understood, saying. 
no, that's not what this is about. You know, we want them for this. If they're successful, you know, then we'll see about it in the future. But a lot of those, a lot of opportunities just went by the wayside from uh, from agents trying to secure multi-episode arcs and, and force your guy's hand in the story. Yeah, we would never sign multi, multi-episode or multi-year deals with anybody until we until we loved them and then then we would usually have our arms twisted by their agents or their managers that if you want them back for this one they've got to come back for these three but they had to they had to earn that <laughs> absolutely yeah. i am looking back at uh the first season of that show and it's so clear how quickly and there and there are a couple of of episodes in the beginning that are that are are not indicative of the quality of the series moving forward but you're finding your your footing and it is it is so impressive to me how quickly compared to a show like Star Trek the Next Generation which really took like two and a half seasons to really take off um how quickly these these characters and uh the story direction finds its footing um what do you think uh, was was the real factor to that? Was it just the the cast was gelling, or was it that you know you had such a good story to go with from from the get go in terms of where you wanted to take the show, or was it that you had oh. you had four seasons you know pretty quickly out of the gate? I, I'm always impressed by the velocity at which the cast and the story and everything comes together. How SG One really finds its footing. I think by Torment of Tantalus, if if not sooner that everything is just clicking with this show. Yeah, I think it's a certain degree of luck. I think it's a certain degree of, uh, you know, not tooting my own horn, but talent between me and Brad and Robert Cooper. Um, we had a shorthand among ourselves that was the, be, mostly because, in Brad and I's case, because of Outer Limits, because we were cranking those out so fast. That we, I think we kind of thought the same and we went down the same path. And when we agreed on a character's character, we stuck with it. And um, and we had the, the great fortune of having this multi-episode order. So we knew we could take our time with character development. You know, on a regular series, especially these days, you have to somehow shorthand the character's character in five sentences in the first episode so that, you know, the audience immediately knows who that person is and you can't do a lot of development because it's going to, you could get canceled in six episodes and you didn't get there, you know, it's crazy. So now we had the luxury of being able to say, this is where we're going with this, but we don't have to do it yet, you know, for this character, for this relationship, for this mythology of the show. Um, but it took some time. I mean, I think our first few episodes were not very good, frankly. Um, but that was because we were figuring it out. We were figuring out how to how to do it. We were figuring out what we could afford to do and couldn't afford to do. Um, we were figuring out what our actors could do and not do and wouldn't do. And um, we were getting pressure from the network to sex it up and we didn't want to. And that was an issue. Um, and so like that uh, early episode of Mancip something mm-hmm. was yep. an embarrassment because it was all about trying to get Amanda in a sexy position for, you know, to satisfy that note. And it was not good. Um, 
And uh, eventually we just kind of said, you know, let's just do what we do well and stop trying to do that. And, you know, our audience seems to be mostly family audience anyway. We shouldn't be doing that anyway. What were your feelings on um, uh, the nudity in, in the pilot? Showtime uh, required this for the series to go to they, air. They didn't, my re- they didn't require they didn't it. Require. They requested okay. it. They requested they, it. They requested it. They liked they had this thing and it's really interesting how this has evolved actually at the time it was all about getting subscribers much like streamers are now and so their attitude and i think rightfully so at the time it's totally different now was we have to provide something that the network tv networks can't provide or who's going to pay for us so that means at the time, in their minds, meant language, nudity, graphic violence. You know, you could take everything further than you could on their network. Then with the invention of um, The Sopranos, <laughs> they realized it could become, it could be controversial, controversial topics. It could be anti-heroes. It could be stuff that is not commercial but is artistic and, and everything changed. Sopranos really, in my mind, changed a lot of television. Um, but when we were doing it, it was what can you give us that we can't put on the network on the network? And ultimately that's why Showtime canceled us was that you could get a show like this on network TV. It wasn't cable. And um, so that's why we did the, the nudity in that episode. And Brad and I both just cringed when we saw it on the show and in fact we cut it out of a, of the rerun and Brad cut it out of the reboot yeah the final cut and um we never did it again it's just in it, fact there was another nude scene in the pilot that we cut really yeah the girl who got taken at the beginning she had a new a nude scene in it. Oh, okay. So that wasn't originally shot tighter. That was originally she had it in her contract to go for it. Okay. And we tightened it up. Yeah, we tightened it up and did it without. Well, I think it's also more of a shock to um to, to when 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 Vi goes when 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 Vi gets exposed because we're we're attached to Daniel and so seeing her like this, I think in my opinion provides more of a punch. You know, because it, we see how it, it was integral to the story. It didn't, you know, it wasn't gratuitous in that way, yeah. but we could have done it without it. Yeah. You know what I mean? We could have done it without showing anything and still had her be as if she's naked, simulated nudity. But it was showtime and we need, you know, we needed to give them what they were asking for. Absolutely. Um, but we never again. Were, were there and, you know one of the reasons that outer limits was such a success is it had a lot of nudity and it was completely a show that you could only do on cable because it had some really graphic violence and disgusting sci-fi stuff monsters and guts and gore and but that was not this show you know it took me a while to get used to it once once i had bought the uh, showtime subscription for sg1 seeing that outer limits was on that i would play outer limits on Showtime as well, and it took me a little, a few episodes to realize that the show, the syndicated show that I was watching, in many respects, was not the show that was airing uh, on 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 Showtime. So it was, it took me aback, honestly, 
as yeah. you know, as a viewer that it's I didn't realize how much it was being transformed for syndication market. Yeah, but it worked for that show because that show was not a, a family show. Right. And you it's know, an it anthology. It was a dark show. Yeah. And it was a it. dark, dark show. But um, Stargate was not. Stargate was a, was a lighthearted show and did not, it did not belong in that show. The violence in Stargate was also very sanitized by choice. You didn't see a bunch of blood. You know, when somebody got shot, you didn't see a bunch of blood go. Yeah, it's not Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. As, but it still gets the point across. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there is some sexual aliens kind of aspect to the symbiote and the pouch and what's going on there and everything else. Well, Hathor, Hathor was a, an attempt to satisfy Showtime also and a very poor attempt. That's one of my, the ones I'm most embarrassed by. I wrote it, but it was um, In fact, another one. Well, Sue, Sue Ann, you know, we regularly have her on on this show, and she has. There are those who stick by her to this, day, regardless of of how it, it came off. That that character is is remembered by a, a huge swath of. No, I know she has a, a huge fan following. It's it's interesting. So I guess it wasn't as awful as I thought. I was embarrassed <laughs> by it because it just I knew why it was created it was for Showtime, and uh, just have a little sex in the show, a little. Sexiness. Sexy it up, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, if you, if if the concession was not going to be made with Carter, I can understand, you know, them wanting to say, well, can you at least give us an episode with a with a queen, an Egyptian queen, and you know, goddess of sex, drug, and rock and roll? That's the way to go. I can see the position you were in. Yeah, no, they didn't say that. I, you know, it was my idea. I have to take full blame for it. I mean, they were saying we need, can we get a little sexier on the show? And I went and looked at all the Egyptian gods and said, well, that's what Hathor is all about. So let's do a story with her and came up with it. What elements, aside from uh, the the suicidal Jack O'Neill, were you interested in taking from the feature film or modifying from the feature film that, that perhaps you didn't get to? Uh, we take the staff weapons. We we literally take the the um, uh, the molds for the Stargate in the feature film are the ones that uh, uh, John Smith and and uh, uh, I'm forgetting uh, the name of our your production designer um, originally. He's Richard Hudolin. Um, Richard Hudolin, yeah. Richard yeah. Hudolin took for the the series. Um, what were there any the death gliders even were, were taken from that? Were there any elements, additional elements from the feature film that you were wanting well, to you know the to helm, stay away the big from? helmets that close? Yes, and we, we used those in the in the pilot, and then we dumped them because they just were so cumbersome and so hard to do. And it was before visual effects could do them completely digitally, so we had to literally do them mechanically and. We'd lose hours in the day trying to get those damn things to operate wow. properly. So, and they were really heavy. So you mostly had to put them on stunt people because if you put them on actors, they, you know, they collapse after a while. Wow. Yeah, we really wanted to be true to the to the movie, so we really tried to take as much from the movie as we could take from the movie, um, and then add to it. I mean, the first the the, the first thing I said to John Symes in that meeting was. This is a show, this is a movie that had a, a big gate that had, I don't remember how many numbers there are, how many symbols there are on it, but 48 symbols or something. Yeah. And you dial a combination of, of eight of them 
why does it only go to one planet? This should be some, you know, this should be a series. It should go to a million planets. And that's kind of what, that's the kind of thing we did was we looked at things that were in the movie and we said, how can we take this further? Mm. Robert in Torment of Tantalus took us back to, uh, I can't remember the lady's character name, the woman. Catherine in, uh, Langford. Catherine Langford, yes. yeah. And she had a fiance who got lost on the other side. I love yeah. this episode. Um, Keen well, Curtis. And uh, we have, uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful directing. Elizabeth Hoffman, I believe she's 95 now. She's still hanging in there. Is so, she really? Oh, that's she good. Is. We Because we tried to get her to come back to play the role another time. And she was very sick and we couldn't. So obviously she got well from that. I've lost track of track of her. So oh, this was here. That makes me happy. Absolutely. I yeah. I talked with her a couple of years ago. I've been meaning to write her since, but yeah, she's she's as far as I'm aware, doing still doing well. Um, wow, good for her. She was so wonderful. So this warms with. my heart. You were you were going to have Catherine back. This was before you you left at the end of season three. Yeah, she couldn't come back because she was very sick. She I think she had cancer, although they wouldn't oh tell my. us. Okay, I'm and curious. she. She couldn't come back, and so we didn't do it because we didn't want to recast it yet again. Oh, this is yeah, I know this is true. And if, yeah. for all the different time periods, you had different actors playing her anyway. Yeah. Do, what um, do you recall? What kind of story that would have been? I'm. I don't remember. Okay. Yeah, it was so long ago. Okay, it's fair. So long ago, yeah. It's one of those situations going back to the helmets where you have. The budget limitations, you have time limitations with how, how long these things are taking on on uh, a show. Uh, in game adaptations of the game, a short li- uh, Stargate, as short-lived as they were, you know, they those situations really allowed for a variety of helmets for the different Egyptian gods to be released. This is one of the, those things that you couldn't afford to do on a, on a television right. series, you know? And there's... <clears throat> A lot, I think, that you guys did manage to get on the screen, uh, regardless, going to a new world every single week. The production schedule just must have been a frenzy. I don't know how Richard Hudolin stayed on his feet. He was amazing. And Bridget was amazing. Um, Bridget McGuire, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she was his art director. And then I think became, after I was gone, became the person. Yes. Yeah, she, um, I mean, they, yeah, the stuff they pulled off still amazes me. I'll tell you an interesting story about visual effects. We had more visual effects in that show than I think any show had ever had on television prior to that. It had a huge visual effects budget. And even then, we could only do a few an episode because it was so expensive. And in the years that we made this show, starting with the first season of of, uh, Outer Limits and then going to the third season of Stargate, The technology moved so fast that by the time I was leaving the show, we had moved from Silicon Graphics workstations to Max, and we couldn't spend all the money we had in the effects budget because it had, it had, the technology had moved so fast and you had a surplus. Yeah. So that, well, no, we moved it to other things. Oh, okay. But, um, the, uh, that moved, uh, I mean, that enabled us to have the little Asgard alien walking around. In the beginning of the, sh- the series, in the first season, he was just a rubber puppet. Um, you can never see him below the waist. In the second, in, yeah, se- the second season, season, he appeared. And then third, he was, he was yeah. digital for a couple shots. Yeah. And he got more and more digital. But uh, 
it was just amazing how fast technology moved. And now I'm doing this space show where we wouldn't even consider doing all the stuff we're doing back then because one shot would cost our whole budget, you know? And now we're just, we're going to be cranking out all these visual effects. I don't know much, I mean, Outpost had uh, sometimes as many as 500 effect shots in an episode, which is crazy. That's, that's feature film, you know? Yeah. That's that's absolutely. just gotten it's just gotten so easy to do or or inexpensive to do in terms of the equipment. The artists still cost money, but <laughs> of course, there was a set amount. Uh, Bruce Bruce Walosh and and, and uh, had mentioned this of he when Rainmaker was shooting uh, was was involved in, in Stargate at the time. You had you had I think three or four different puddles for the pilot episode, Children of the Gods. And the puddle effect and the Stargate effect, that really is like the effect of that episode, you know, because you're bringing mm -hmm. that to life. Um, and then you settled kind of on the look for it. But the puddle pass, uh, according to the people who were, were digitally composing it, was always cost the same amount from the first episode to the last of Stargate, regardless of the technology that came about. And it was, I was told that it was just because the amount of time that goes into creating it, regardless of how good it looks. So even though some technologies do evolve, there are certain price points that do stick. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about that. In the first three seasons that I was there, that was true. Uh, I'm not sure why it would continue to be true after that, but um, if, if he says so. <laughs> yeah. It's I mean, I, I always, I take credit for, um, probably wrongly so, but in my own mind, I take credit for creating the visual effects business in, in Vancouver, because when we started, there were like two houses and now it's like a visual effects hub because we, we needed so many effects that all these companies started up to, to feed us and grew and grew and grew and got bought out. And, you know, it's funny that all these companies are still there and, and they started mostly for out for outer limits and then Stargate. It's just crazy. The and the fabricators that you guys had, Stargate Productions had, I mean, the the machined metal. Some of these pieces that are behind me here are at the end of 17 television seasons and are a product of you guys building year over year. This isn't cheap stuff. I mean, yeah, I have was... a suit downstairs that was a hundred thousand dollars in development for uh, development costs for Atlantis. It's not how much it's worth; that's how much it costs them to make, and it's beautiful. The stuff that you guys produced over the course of yeah, our, that our run. wardrobe department was another amazing department. I mean, it was a factory because every time we went to a new planet, we had to have people dressed in alien clothing, and it had to be cranked out every episode. What were some of your favorite? Uh, aliens over the course of your your time on uh, this series you guys introduced uh the unas in uh season one the asgard obviously we finally began to get a look at them in and season two um the Gwawuld were obviously a big part of of the canon of the show peter williams as apophis sokar david palfi came in, in in season three and did a great job the tokra were all cool who were some of your your uh, favorites mythologically and just to see on screen well mythologically it was the asgard because in my mind the asgard were the greys that have visited earth supposedly and to me that that's just kind of cool when it you know when it touches other or other parts of the real world 
Um, and they were, they were cool little puppets and eventually CG guys. Um, my favorite alien character, I think, was um, the Tok'ra, who was uh, Carter's dad. Ah, uh, yes, yes. So that was name. Jacob Carter, played by the great yeah. Carmen Argenziano. He had Selmac in him. Yes. Wow. <laughs> you really remember all this. Um, yeah, he was my favorite character just because it had such great drama to it. You know, here's this man who's going to die of cancer. And if he takes this alien in, into him, he'll survive. And his strained relationship with his daughter. And and Carmine was just such an amazing actor. He was, he he was, was a wonderful guy. Yeah, he really was. And one of the things that we haven't talked about is the fact that this is sci-fi that is deliberately set in the here and now. And you don't see, you didn't see a ton of that then. It was spaceships and planets and space stations and a a lot of that. And he had lymphoma. And how how often do you encounter something like that on, in a sci-fi show that we as audience can go and say, members can go and say, I knew someone who dealt with that, you know, and mm-hmm. I, we see a portion of ourselves more on screen, more earnestly than we would a Starfleet insignia in the 24th century. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a big reason that I wanted to make Stargate in the first place was it was, it, I always said it's a way to do Star Trek in, in the present, you know, visiting alien planets and alien cultures and so on, but with today's technology, instead of with, you know, advanced magic technology. <laughs> Absolutely. So the Asgard in your mind, did you, from the word go, did you want them to be um, the Roswell Greys or did that kind of yeah. evolve as you went along? No, that was always in my was mind. The plan. That was, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And having- I mean, first it came out of, you know, out of Norse mythology. Um, and I don't know if we even knew that there was a, uh, the little guys at first, but once we knew that there were, um, I, you know, I said, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if they were the grays? And we actually had that puppet from, uh, an episode of the outer limits that we altered to be. I didn't know that. Yeah. So he appeared in outer limits first. Yep. In in a little bit, he was a little different. We changed him a little bit, but yeah. Okay. Wow. I, there's some episodes that I've missed. Absolutely. And whose idea was it to bring in Michael as the voice of Thor? You know, I don't remember whose idea that was. It wasn't my idea. Okay. I can't take credit for that. I don't remember. It was a successful character. Yeah. Did you see the rest of the show? Did you Did you watch it to its conclusion? I saw. I've seen some of them. I haven't seen all of them. Okay. I was just too busy, and I was running two other shows and it also it it you know it went in a different direction than i would have gone with the show which was certainly you know brad and robert's prerogative Mm -hmm. but that made it hard for me to watch do you know what i mean i think that you you and dean devlin can uh, appreciate that from that perspective once it moves on without you it's it's like well i'm glad that it's successful but it's not mine so much anymore Right. At first I was watching it and saying, well, that's interesting what they're doing. And then I was saying, oh, I wouldn't have done that. And, you know, after a while, I just kind of lost interest a little bit, even though my friends were all making the show and I wanted to watch it because they were doing it. But other than that, I I wouldn't have watched it. So I understand the uh, the development with Atlantis. Uh, Brad was laying that groundwork in season 
one. Um, I'm curious to see. Did you watch that pilot? What did you What did you think of it? And what would you have uh, done differently, knowing that that was seeds that were planted when you were still working with them? It really wasn't planted when I was there. So if it was. He never told me about it. Yeah, in season one, there's an episode called Solitudes where a second Stargate is found in in the Arctic, and that right. is that is oh, the, that in, the one. Right. That's that. I don't think Brad knew that that was going to lead to Atlantis, though. Okay. Um, maybe he did and never told me that, but um, I think that was he went back to that and said, "Oh, that would be cool if that was, you know." Okay. On the, Connecting on those the, two together. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that was such a wild episode when we shot that. How so? We shot it. In, we shot it in a refrigerated soundstage, so we'd have the breath. Martin Wood's first episode, as yeah. as full director. Yep, and um, which is something you just don't do. It was insane. We when we told the studio we were going to bring in giant air conditioning units and refrigerate the set to the point where you can see people's breaths, they said you're out of your mind. But we did it. You wanted to make it real. Hmm? You wanted to make it real. Yeah. And it's one of the best episodes in season one because it addresses, um, not only is it just like a good bottle episode in, in itself, these these two people trapped in a cave together, um, it addresses that tension between the two characters and they, they grow closer as a result despite the fact that there are certain bridges that they can't cross. Did you ever see the outtake of Amanda... And Stuck on a at... glacier with MacGyver. Fantastic. Absolutely. What was it? Uh, bringing the Air Force were consultants on the show. Um, whose idea was this to get the Air Force that, or was it something that was? If you're going to do the U.S. Air Force, you have to have involvement from them. Was that? Was that? some kind of, of mandate no, to have I, them as close as they were? I, I'm not sure how, how it came about. I think it came about, but I'm not positive that our wardrobe people contacted the U.S. Air Force to find out how they could get wardrobe that was real uniforms. And the Air Force then contacted us and said, we would like to support this show and be consultants on it. And in return, we will give you uniforms and soldiers and weapons and airplanes down the line and right. so on. So we were, you know, yes, yes, please. Um, and uh, it was a challenge sometimes. And there were a few episodes that they took their name off of, but still let us do. Um, I remember a few arguments I had with them that were in retrospect, hysterical there's an episode where O'Neill and Teal'c and I think a couple other characters go to area 51. Correct. And there was a line in it where Rick says, is this where you keep all the little green men? And I got a call from the network that, I mean, from the air force that said, there are no little green men at area 51. And I said, it, it's a joke. Yeah, you give that <laughs> line joking. to Reynolds in Touchstone. And he said, he said, um, he said, I don't, I don't care. There are no aliens at Area 51 and you cannot imply it in any way, shape or form. And I said, all right, well, let me think about it and I'll get back to you and see if we can come up with a compromise. And I called him back and I said, how about this? 
how about Rick says, is this where you keep the, 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 the little green men and the soldier that he's talking to says, there are no aliens at area 51. And then Rick looks at Teal'c and says, present company excluded. <laughs> and the guy cracked up so hard that he, uh, he said, all right, you can do that. As long as the soldier says our line, which is right. There are no aliens at area 51. That is, so, that is so good. Have have you and Dean had the conversation about the Air Force pulling their support for Independence Day because of uh, of showing Area Fifty One? No, I've never asked him about that. They did. That. They sure did. They would not support the film. It's in one of the special features for one of the DVDs. They would not support Independence Day because Independence Day showed aliens at Area 51. So this is right in line with that. They, you know, wow. something's going on, man. You know, if it wasn't, who would care? Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So then the other, the other good story was the time we had, man, we had, uh, a parallel universe and Amanda is a civilian and she and, and O'Neill kiss. Oh yes. Point of view. And they said that there is the subordinate officer and, and, and superior officer cannot have a relationship. Yep. And we said, even in a parallel universe. Right. And they said, we don't want to go there. It, it, it's, it's too much of a can of worms for us. And they took their name off that one. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I remember in season one, you did the ultimate reality with there before the grace of God, which is one of the greatest episodes there is because it's like all the chickens come home to roost. And that's the one where Carter was made a a civilian still. um, She was still an astrophysicist, but I thought that it worked because, you know, you, you have to have some kind of tension between the, the male and the female lead. You have to, yeah. you know, there is Eros there. This is, this is a television show. And I think that that, I think that that dance, you know, even though it played out over eight seasons, as long as Rick was on that show, I think it was successful, you know, but would, would you have had, you know, it, all things being equal, Jonathan, would you, would you have had um, them ended up together if you could have? You know, that's a that's too much of a hypothetical because okay. it would have depended on everything that happened between episode three and when they got together. Um, but I always hoped that at some point one of them would leave the military and then they would admit their their love for each other. But I'm not sure we would have ever been able to get there because so much happened between then and then, you know. This is true. <clears throat> There's an Atlantis uh, in Atlantis season four. Uh, Carter uh, took over uh, the the base, and there is a deleted scene where she is asked if she is seeing anyone, and she says yes, but he's in Washington D.C. and I don't get back very often. And at that point, O'Neill was reassigned to the Pentagon. So, even though it's a deleted scene, there's a lot of shippers out there who still hope. Yeah, nice little hint. What do you uh, look to do with um, the arc in terms of uh, how many how many seasons are you looking at? Um, what what do you want to bring to the screen it, through all of your body of work that you've not really had a chance to do yet? You know, um, I'm just not that intellectual. Okay, <laughs> and by that I mean, I to me I look at my job as being to entertain people. Okay. 
And so what I want to do more than anything is make a show that like I thought Stargate was, that's just fun, a fun romp that people want to tune into every day to escape all the crap that's going on in the real world and, and just have fun and hang out with this group of people we create that they want to hang out with. Um, and if along the way we deliver a few little subtle metaphors, mm. a few little lessons, I think that's what science fiction's best at. But that's not the primary goal ever. You know, the primary goal is have fun. You know, I, I've, uh, you know, sci-fi heads probably hate me for this, but I've spoken at some of the conventions and people will ask me a question like, so when you made, you know, Apophis do this to this, were you trying to say that the, the <laughs> meaning of life in the world is, and my response is always, no, I oh. thought it was cool. Absolutely. <laughs> it was fun. It made me smile, you know, that's just, that's just how I write, how I run shows. Um, so that's why I, you know, that question is a hard question for me to answer. Cause the answer is just, I want to, I want to make a show that entertains people and people want to come back to and that is successful. We had Dean on, uh, when we launched and he told us about uh, how much he loves working with you. Um, what, what is it like working with Dean Devlin? Well, I'll tell you the story of our meeting. I hope it doesn't. Um, I hope it doesn't rub him the wrong way because he'll hear it. But um, he, I, I had written a pilot that he read. So I get a call from my agents that said um, Dean Devlin wants to meet with you and hear if you have any ideas. And I said, "You're punking me. You know, this is he's he's punking me because." He did not like Stargate, the series, uh-huh. and had had voc- been pretty vocal about that. Uh-huh. In the commentary, he says it. We have no relationship with the series. Yeah. And um, I thought that, you know, he, I said, does he know who I am? Does he know that I'm the guy who did the series? And they said, yeah, he knows who you are. They want, he wants to meet with you. So I went in, and I met with him, and I pitched to him. And Dean has this habit, he still does it to me today, where you're pitching this great idea that has all these places where he should laugh and where he should go, oh, cool. And he listens like this. <laughs> and you're sure while you're pitching it that he just hates it, right? And, and when I finished the pitch, he said, I love that. Let's do it. <laughs> And then he went on and on about what he loved about it. And, and we went out with this series and we became fast friends pitching this series. This is Outpost uh, or, or is this, no, or is it's this another show? Out- it's another oh, show it's before. That, that we're still trying to sell. We haven't sold it yet. Okay. And um, when that seemed to have been dead on the vine, he said, I have this show called Outpost that needs a showrunner. Um, would you take a look at it? And I did. And I, came in with all kinds of, of uh, demands to the guys who created it, who were these new, young, talented guys who had never really done television. And they agreed to all of it, and Dean agreed to all of it. So I did it, and Dean and I have been hitting it off ever since. You know, we did four years of that, and when that ended, he said, hey, I've got this other thing. You want to come do this? And still going with him. So wow. um, he and I are we think the same creatively. I mean, we both, you know, that answer I gave you a minute ago about just 
entertaining. Yeah. That's, that's Dean's thing. You know, that's how he believes in doing TV and movies. And so that's how we both think, you know? Um, so it's turned out to be great. He's, you know, I can't think of another guy I'd rather work with. His, uh, you, you, the idea of the circle I mean, transcends all all kinds of, of mediums and storytelling, one of the oldest symbols in the world, but the idea of the gate, you know, and working with Roland to create that, they created something that they only lightly scratched the surface of in right. the feature film. And you guys recognized that and took it in a different direction than he would have taken it, but you still recognize the, the creative impulse there of, of what he, what, what could have been, could be achieved with that idea. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, he, you know, we've talked about it since then. And, and, you know, he and, and Roland wanted to make a series of movies mm-hmm. and they kind of had that ripped out from under them by MGM who wanted it to be a series and wouldn't let them do the series because of the they wanted to do this big series that MGM would not be able to afford to do, and they felt like it would bankrupt them, so they didn't agree to do it. And so they were bitter about it, you know. Rightfully, I don't blame them. It was their baby that they had already planned on making these movies out of. Um, and then Dean said, "Then the final nail in the coffin was when he saw the nudity in the pilot. He said that doesn't belong in this universe." And that kind of pissed him off and he never watched it again. So I've said, Dean, you really should go watch a few of them. <laughs> I think we stuck pretty I think we stuck pretty close to what you wanted to be doing. And I think you might actually like the show. Might actually I don't enjoy think it. Has. No, I and I yeah. don't blame him, you know. Um yeah. and th- that was that was the conversation that I had that you know, once once the, the child has been taken out of your hands, it's it's gonna be uh attended to by someone else. But having said all that, you know, seventeen seasons of television and the fandom, myself included, that exists to this day, something's working. And yeah. um, and he planted the seed. He planted the, a beautiful seed indeed. And I am so grateful, um, you know, that, that we've been able to have him on. But that I, I think it's so cool that the two of you have found, um, have found common ground and are continuing to create together. Um, it just shows yeah, you so you can never circle. be surprised. It's, it's so full circle. It really is amazing. I cannot wait to um, see what you guys have. Uh, I think it's going to be a great show. I think it's going to be a great show. We're everything we're coming up with so far is exciting. The sets are exciting. Um, you know, seeing actors reading the parts is you know, it's going to be a fun show. In fact, I just got another stack of tapes. Auditions? Oh, terrific! <laughs> fun times. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun and it's depressing at the same time because for every you know great person you see, there's 15 that you just mm. you almost want to call their uh, call their agent and say you know tell this guy to get another job because <laughs> absolutely this poor guy you know um, <laughs> wasting his time. Yeah, is this going to be a strictly um, human show or is there a possibility? of alien life in, in one form or another. Okay. I'm I, not telling. Okay. I had, you'll have to tune in. Yes. All right. That's legit. We can count on humans and we can count on spaceship. 
Spaceship exactly. Is, do you have the ship look? Do you have the look of the ship figured out yet? Do you know what it's you want it to look built. like? It's, we've already got the digital model wow. built. and we're Building the interior now. Yeah, that's great. I wish I could show it to you, but I think uh, sci-fi would kill me. No, no. I'm. Hoping... We have we have like blueprints of it as if it were a real ship with where each room is and wow, okay. what the hallways look like to get between them. And did you? It's a big ship. Did you want um, more uh, real? Are you are you look or are you look going for more abstract? Does you want the no, ship to look more, good or do you want the ship to look okay? That that in a hundred years could exist. Yeah, okay. that real, real. It's actually based. Uh, a lot of the look is based on the SpaceX okay. um, projections of what some of their ships are going to look like, combined with a lot of NASA stuff. Okay, so it's uh, you know we're. We've got to invent some technologies just to be able to tell stories like gravity. Um, that's a challenge. And for a while, we were having people climbing ladders and being anti-gravity and floating around. And we just realized we can't tell all these stories that way. It's just going to kill us. So mm-hmm. so there's, an, there's a gravity device that's creating artificial gravity that we'll never really explain. You know, we have to do stuff like that. But Absolutely. For most, on the most part, it's, it's very real. Okay. It's kind of like on Stargate, everybody speaks English. You know, we had to just <laughs> accept that. That was just one of those things. If if I the la- one of the last things um, uh, that I was always kind of surprised at was because you know the language barrier was such a key aspect of the feature film. I always assumed, you know, th- that had had I been in your guys' shoes, I would have introduced a device that would have like fit in the palm of the hand very quickly. And like the, one of the first couple of episodes so that they would have an excuse rather than, well, they all speak English, you know, some kind of like technological component to explain that because it is a big plot hole. We did, we did toy with that. And the problem with that was um, first of all, it would have felt like we were stealing it from Star Trek. That's fair. And the second thing is that technology just did not exist at that time. And we were setting it at a real time. And so we were trying to use all real technology and, you know, right down to the, the, the drone that, you know, the bomb robot that we used as a drone to go through the gate. That's so cool. um, um, it was all real technology. We didn't want to use any, any made up technology. And so we hypothesized that the ancients and maybe the Gould had spread humanity all over the universe and our language with it. A little bit of a cheat, but that was kind of our our explain it away thing. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And the ghoul, by their nature, wouldn't have bothered with some kind of translator device. They wouldn't have cared. If you don't speak their language too bad, we're going to enslave you. You'll learn that way. That that makes sense. Right. But it's still a little bit of a cheat. I mean, I'll I'll readily admit it, but you have to, sometimes you have to do that for, to make the drama work. You can't have subtitles on every this is true. Culture you come to, you know, you just can't do it. You can't give Daniel a week to to figure out what everyone's saying and then cut right. back to the episode. You've got to move the story along. So at some point, you have to just buy that. You know, there are there are Vancouver's throughout the galaxy. You know, yeah. <laughs> that would have been the, the one thing that I, I'm glad that you were able to do uh, desert locations with that with that continually reduced patch of land that that was that was up there but uh you know what that was right i don't it was a it was either a sand quarry or a gravel quarry it was literally just big piles of sand that had been put there artificially for um 
I mean, that's how they supplied sand, right. the sandboxes and construction sites and stuff. And that's where it was stored. And we would go there and shoot. And they allowed us to bulldoze it into dunes and whatever wow. we needed. Yeah. And the rest of the, I mean, the problem with Vancouver is that it's all, it's, a, it's not a problem if you live there. It's gorgeous. It's all green and lush. But when you're trying to do different planets, mm-hmm. they're it, all green and lush. It works as Colorado Springs and, you know, and green and lush planets. But beyond that, you're right. So that was, you got a lot of mileage out of that area, let me tell you. So both on set and outside. So it worked. Yeah, and we used a lot of visual effects to, to augment. Absolutely. Locations. But uh, now that's why we took outposts to Stargate. I mean, to uh, Serbia was, it, we started the show in Utah. If you ever watch the first season, it's embarrassing because it's so low budget. Um, and so we moved it to Belgrade where there are real castles and real medieval places that we could shoot. And just, you know, the production value quadrupled, quintupled, whatever at that point. And so I wish we could have done that with Stargate traveled with it, but you know, mm. it's just too much, too big, a too big, a unit to move around like that. We just couldn't do it. And a big gate to boot. I, my understanding was John Smith yeah. had told me it would take a day to put up and a day to take down. Well, we had two gates. We had the one in right. the, actually three, I think. We had one in the standing set that was permanent and worked. Worked in terms of turning. Yeah, the gear. Another planet. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had the road gates. Right. Variations on the road gates that could be put up and torn down. Yeah. It's, um, you know, when, when everything, you see everything that goes into it, it's amazing for what, what got done back in 1997. When now it's just like, we'll just do an insert here and, you know, spaceship will be here, you know, in just a few days. Got an animatic this afternoon, you know, like you said, exactly. it's extraordinary how fast technology has moved. It's, it's kind of, it's frankly scary in, in some ways. So it's like, yeah. almost like we can't keep ahead of it, but. Yeah. I mean, I think it's actually hurting a lot of. A lot of movies and TV because they're they're too reliant on it. Oh, they're leaning on it too much. You know what I mean? Like I, I when I watch a James Bond, now I used to watch a James Bond movie and go, God, I can't believe they did that. Now I'd look at it and go, eh, that was CG. You know, <laughs> he so didn't really jump. He didn't really jump from the helicopter onto the train. You know. Yeah, it's 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 frustrating when I go and watch you know a special feature or, or an extra or something, and I found I. Like in the Matrix, there's a scene where where Neo and and uh, Trinity actually in the in the film they jumped off uh, a high rise. So one of the actors told me that they actually pulled this off. But as an audience member, you just assume at this point that it's done digitally, and they actually went and did it. Yeah, and that's too bad. Yeah, I heard that too. And and now and then you look at it as as a producer, I look at it as well. What a what a waste. Why did they make that? Why did they put those two actors at risk when they could have just done it digitally? Because the audience is going to think it's digital anyway. They don't know any better at this point. We've trained them yeah. to, to behave that way. Right. So, well, it's yeah. just, it's, it's the future is not going to be boring in terms of visual effects and storytelling and everything. The, the, the number of things that you can achieve now in camera and within a, within a TV budget now is just extraordinary. And um, I can't wait to see what you guys do. Well, thank you. Um, I'll, I'll stay in touch and let you know once we have please stuff that I'm allowed to show you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once we get a, uh, uh, I'd I'd love I'd love to uh, get get the see the pilot 
and have that aired to everyone and then have you back so that we can have fans um, discuss that discuss that and um, your ideas for that and um, get a, a few more um, uh, Stargate stories, particularly the episodes that you wrote um, back back under our belts here. So it has so been Dean wonderful Devlin, to have you. Dean Devlin wrote the pilot and he is directing the pilot. So it should be pretty oh, spectacular. Oh, all yeah. right. Okay. And I'm writing the second one and will not be directing that one because I've got to keep the writers going. Do you I'll probably direct some later? I would, that was about my next question. Okay, so yeah. it's 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 in it's it's in the plans at some point down the line. Yeah, I mean the problem with the fact that it shoots in Belgrade and the writing is here, it's not like I can just run down to the set and direct and then run up to the writers' room and talk to the writers. So where are have, you? We have to finish the scripts. I'm in LA. You're in LA. What's the time difference yeah. there to to Belgrade? Nine, nine hours. Oh, that's a day. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, and it takes about 16 hours to get there. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, thank the God for fiber internet. So, yeah. at least get some dailies. Oh, or Thank God for, for Zoom. This, I mean, I, yes. We have, produ- we have production meetings every day now, and it's, you know, half of us are in Belgrade, half of us, or a third of us are in London, and the rest of us are here. Remarkable technology. Yeah. Jonathan, again, Thank you so much, and best of uh, fortune on this next endeavor. I know it's going to be something Thank that you. I'm going to want to watch, uh, and uh, and we will we will have you have you back when there's something to see and talk about. Okay, great, thanks. Nice, nice talking to you, David. Very nice talking to you, Jonathan Glasner, Stargate SG One co-creator. It was wonderful. Uh, to have uh, him on. We haven't spoken with him in a number of years, and he's someone I've been trying to get uh, on board for um, uh, Dial the Gate for a long time now and have just not found the right contact information. And it's one of those things where, you know, once once you do make uh, contact with someone and they understand what it is that we're trying to do, it's magic. And it was terrific to have him on for uh, this episode. Dial the Gate is brought to you every week for free. And we do appreciate uh, you tuning in. If you want to support the show further, buy yourself some of our themed swag. We're now offering t-shirts, tank tops, sweatshirts, and hoodies for all ages, as well as cups and other accessories in a variety of sizes and colors at dialthegate.com. You can click on the merchandise tab, click on tab, click on a specific design to see what items are being offered. Check out as fast and easy. You can use a credit card or PayPal. Just visit dialthegate.com or go straight there at dialthegate.com slash merch. And thanks so much for your support. I appreciate you so much for tuning in. Thanks to my uh, team for making this happen. My producer, Linda Gategabber Fury, thank you so much. As well as my moderating staff, Summer, Tracy, Keith, Jeremy, Reese, and Anthony, you guys make the show uh, possible. Big thanks to Frederick Marcoux at Concepts Web. He's our web developer on Dial the Gate. And also a big thanks to Jeremy, our webmaster, uh, who keeps uh, dialthegate.com up to date. I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate uh, the continued growth of this show and that uh, we're just uh, continuing to uh, reach uh, the the 20,000 subscriber, push towards the 20,000 subscriber number. Um, We're at a really great position uh, for whenever MGM and Amazon decide that they're going to launch the next uh, big Stargate thing, whatever that's going to be, whenever that's going to be. And um, I can't wait to see what happens next. So I appreciate you tuning in. 
We'll see you next week for Joseph Malazzi on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producers are Darren Sumner and Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The moderators are Summer Roy, Keith O'Mell, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design is by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots. The webmaster is Frederick Marcoux. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Frederick Marcoux. For inquiries, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes at dialthegate.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>